Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all again this morning. Um, if you'll join me, we'll go ahead and just open up with a word of prayer. Uh, I got some. I gave up caffeine for 21 days, and then today I took pre-workout and a cup of coffee, and it has all just flowed in. So we're just going to pray that, like, God calms whatever is going on inside of me, the bad decisions, um, all that. So if you'll join me, we'll open up in a word of prayer. God, we just come before you. You are so good. God, we thank you that we can gather together. God, we thank you so much for the price that you paid to redeem us from sin and death. And so, God, we just come before you now as we sing praises and seeing who you are as we have remembered the great love that you have for us. And now, as we just dive into your living and active word, may it speak through me to hearts that are prepared to hear it and grow from it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as I've been a pastor, I have come to have a major appreciation for just the way that God created the human body. Um, doing hospital visits and stuff like that, I'll go visit people and they're like, yeah, they just like cut out part of my body and replaced it with this artificial part and it works perfectly fine. And it's just like, man, that is like incredible that the human body can do that. Like, have you ever really thought about the human body and just the like way that God intricately created it and everything works together like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are the body and then he compares it to the human body and each part serves a purpose. You have the appendix that I still don't fully understand. It's removable, but everything else serves a purpose. And God gave you five senses. I think women have a sixth sense where they can tell when the husband is about to do something really dumb. But we all have five senses. And back at the end of 2023, I got COVID and I realized that I lost my smell, which I'll be honest, if I have to lose any of my senses, that's the one I'm choosing, especially with a toddler at home still creating gift packages every single day. And every now and then I have to change them. And it's like that first time I was changing it and I was like, I don't, like I literally stuck it up to my nose to see, like it was closed, don't think, I'm not that weird. But it was like, I'm gonna see how much smell is actually gone. And it was like, whoo, like man, this is amazing. But then I got to realizing, okay, hold on. If I don't smell anything, like we could have a gas leak and I'm not gonna know it. Like, even though I feel like my smell is indispensable or is dispensable, God gave it to us for a reason. And that's kind of how it is. Whenever you have senses that are out of whack or out of place, it actually causes some difficulties for you. And so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at an account as we're continuing on through the life of Christ, and Jesus encounters a man who is blind. He's been blind for quite a while and he has gone without this sense. But what we are going to see is it's not just a physical healing that Jesus is going to perform, but instead it has spiritual meaning behind it. So we're gonna be in Mark 
chapter 8. And to set the stage, we're going to start in verse 22. But to set the stage, Jesus at the beginning of Mark chapter 8 has just fed 4,000 men. We, we heard about Jesus uh, feeding 5,000. And now he comes again and he performs that almost exact same miracle with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. And he is able to take that, break it, and distribute it and feed 4,000 people. And then again, he gets in a boat. He goes across the sea. The Pharisees come to him. He has just done this incredible miracle. And the Pharisees come to him and they're like, what, what kind of sign do you have for us, Jesus? Will, will you do a miracle? What do you have to prove that you are the son of God, that you are who you say you are? And Jesus is like, I've already fed 5,000. I just fed 4,000 again. I have raised the dead. I have given the mute the ability to speak. I have raised a paralyzed man where they lowered the guy through the roof. And then Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, that's preposterous. Only God can forgive sins. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says that you may know, this is the reason for the, for the physical healing, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. So Jesus is doing spiritual things, but the physical is to prove who he is. And the Pharisees are like, nah, can you do another? Like, can you do one more? Keep, keep proving to us who you are. And Jesus was like, you guys are, nah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not even going to say what they are, but you're just, no. Simple as that. No, I'm leaving. And so Jesus goes back over the sea. And as they're going, I love this little encounter that Jesus has with the disciples. Because they're, they're rowing across the sea, and they're like, we only have one loaf of bread. We forgot the bread. And Jesus literally just took seven loaves and fed 4,000 people. And so you would think that they'd be like, hey, Jesus, here, can you do it again? But instead, they're like, where are we going to get bread from? And Jesus says in Mark 8, verse 15, he's like, look out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So here they are talking about like physical bread, and Jesus is like, no, you need to look out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, what, what is he talking about? We don't have bread. He's talking about something like that, like we want to eat Jesus. And so what we see is that they're still not fully understanding who Jesus is. And so then we get to the physical healing in verse 22, where Jesus lands on the seashore and some friends bring a blind man to Jesus. And so in verse 22, it says, they came to Bethsaida. Some people brought to him a blind man and they begged Jesus to touch him. He takes the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked the man, do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And so this is the only place 
in all the ministry of Jesus where there is a two-stage healing. Where Jesus, what he does is he takes the man, goes off, spits on his eyes, puts, touches them, and the guy can see. And so we know the guy wasn't born blind because he knows what trees look like. He has a familiarity with some vision, and so he's like, I see people, but man, it is, it is all blurry. I can make some stuff out, but I can't see it great. And so then Jesus does the second stage of the healing where he touches the man's eyes again, and then he can see crystal clear. But again, the physical healing is representative of a spiritual blindness. So the, the, the physical blindness of the man represents the spiritual blindness of the disciples, but also of us. Because here Jesus is going across the sea and the disciples are worried about, again, the physical things of this world. And Jesus is saying, beware, have you not seen everything that I've done? Do you not know who I am yet? And they're, they're able to kind of see Jesus, like we have John chapter 6, where Peter is like, you are, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have tasted and seen that you are the Holy One of God. And so they kind of understand who Jesus is, but it is not this clear vision of Jesus yet. They don't fully understand, which is the case for us. Every single one of us was born spiritually blind. Every single one of us, not necessarily a physical blindness, but we had a spiritual blindness, a spiritual inability to see who God is and what it is that he's calling for us to do. We needed somebody to step into our lives and heal us. This is like the woman that was bleeding for 12 years. Kind of the same thing. She was without hope. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this. Starting in verse 1, it doesn't use the terminology of blindness. It actually goes further and says you were just completely dead. You were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We weren't following the light. We were walking, as 1 John tells us, in darkness. We were blind. Then he goes on to say in verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, this is where God has taken us from. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in this world. You were spiritually blind and spiritually dead. That is the condition that we were in. But Jesus comes and performs the healing on us. But it's not a perfect vision right away. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is like the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind. In verse 12, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. We can see, but it's kind of like if like their mirrors back then were like polished uh, metals. And so it wasn't this crystal clear mirror that we have today. It was a dim mirror. It's like if you would pick up a scratched mirror and look in it or a spoon or a rotten piece of silver or not rotten, rusted piece of silver that you could look at. And it's like I can kind of see things. 
but I'm not seeing it very clearly. He says, now we see dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So we are spiritually blind. Jesus comes into our lives and he touches us and he gives us spiritual healing. But we still have a sin nature. We still live in a fallen world. And so the sin nature keeps us from seeing clearly. It keeps us where like Paul's talking about, like I'm wrestling with the things I don't want to do and the things that I want to do, I can't do. And so like that is keeping us from fully, truly being able to see God because we are not perfect yet. Just as Dale said, nobody is perfect. And so nobody can see the face of God. We know who God is. We know in part, we can see in part, but we cannot see fully. And so the disciples were spiritually blind and they were kind of starting to see. And so then Jesus has this encounter where they're kind of able to really see. Continuing on in verse 27, it says, if I can find it, Man, I did not write it down. I got it in my Bible, though. All right, verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. Okay, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And so again, here we see the disciples are now really seeing who Jesus is. You are the promised one. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God. You are our savior. They're seeing more and more clearly. Just as the man that was blind, he could see a little bit, and then Jesus touched him again, and they could see, he could see clearly. So with the disciples, they were blind. They could kind of see. Now they're seeing more clearly. But yet still, as Paul told us, we cannot see face to face. But again, that's the same thing that Jesus does with us. He opens the eyes of our hearts. As we allow him to come into our lives, he opens up the eyes of our hearts through sanctification, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through surrendering to him and his way, we start to see more and more clearly. But it won't ever be a perfect 2020 vision. We won't ever on this earth be able to clearly see everything about who God is. But there's coming a day where God gives us hope. In, in Matthew's account, so this is in the Synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record parts of this. And in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon replies, this is Matthew 16, verse 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see right there, Jesus is giving us a hope of eternity. He is saying that right now, you won't be able to see clearly because we're still in broken bodies. But there is going to come a day 
when you will know fully who the Son of God is because I'm building my church and there is nothing that will be able to destroy it. He said that in verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 37 through 39, where he's saying, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is saying, you... When you give your life over to Christ, you are eternally secured in Christ. You become a part of this thing that God calls his church, his bride, his body. And he says, when you are a part of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Life nor death, angels nor demons, rulers or authorities, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He says, you have an eternal hope. When your eyes have been opened, when Jesus touches you and gives you spiritual sight, you are his. And he says you have a hope that nothing will be able to take away. Bring the sword. You have an eternal hope. Lose everything you have. Suffer like Job suffered. You have an eternal hope. They could torture you. They could ridicule you. They could take whatever you have. They, they could throw everything they have at you. None of it will separate you from the love of Christ. None of it will conquer you. Look at all the ways that they've been trying to destroy the church. I mean, ever since you enter into the book of Acts, you see persecution starting to come. You see where they are trying to shut down Christians. Saul, who later became Paul, took it as his personal mission to destroy what he called the way because he thought they were blaspheming against God. And so he went door to door, kicking them down, dragging people out, throwing them in prison, persecuting them, and uh, killing them. And that was just the beginning. You have Nero. You have like 10 emperors who just took it as their mission you have people in China, you have governments in Iraq, you have, you have governments all over the place trying to shut down the church. But where the church is persecuted is usually where you see it growing, is usually where it comes out stronger because God has given us his word that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If the spiritual forces aren't going to prevail against it, what good are the physical forces going to do? And yet you have this eternal Hope where God says there is nothing that will separate you from the love of Christ. That you have a hope that even though 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 12, now we see dimly, he says soon you will see face to face. Now you only know in part, but then you shall be known fully as you are fully known. Think about that real quick for a minute. Face to face with God, face to face with perfect love, that there's going to come a day where you are standing before the creator of the world who said he loves you so much that he gave his only son for you, and you get to stand before him. Maybe you'll probably be dropping to your knees in worship, 
as Revelation tells us. We're just going to, the, the elders even take off their thrones, drop to their knees, and lay them before the Son of God, Jesus. And they say, holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb of God who was slain. That's what we're going to be singing. We have a song. Uh, Laura was playing it earlier. I don't know if she played it for the intro or not, but it's I can only imagine. The closest thing that we can come to of what heaven is truly going to be like. Revelation gives us some symbolism of it. We're told about what it'll be like a little bit, but all of that is going to fall short of the true glory that it is. That all we can truly do is only imagine and hold firm to the hope that we have, the eternal hope that God has given us through Christ. You see, too many Christians, I believe, and I, I fall prey to this too, we walk around defeated. We walk around just beaten down by the, the worries of this world. I mean, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he was like, if anybody has reason to boast, I have a reason more. Like I, was, I received the 40 lashes minus one multiple times. I was beaten with rods. I was shipwrecked three times. I was uh, just thrown in prison multiple times. And then he says, on top of all of that, I am constantly worried about the church. I am constantly concerned about you. But we're not even worried about like the spiritual things, about like, man, I know this guy and he's not giving his life over to Jesus and that just carries a burden on me. Instead, we walk around like, man, I got called a boy and I'm a man. Like, no, you know, that one hits close to home. But, you know, it's just like I have people talking bad about, like whatever it is, fill in the blank of what it is that is weighing you down. And it's like Jesus is saying, through all these things, you're more than a conqueror. That even the gates of hell will not take away what we have received in Christ Jesus. That we are victorious because Jesus is the one that has given us the victory. That's the eternal hope that we have. Someday we will stand in front of God and see him face to face. And so Jesus is telling us that we were spiritually blind, he brought us healing, and someday we'll have an eternal healing. But then he goes on in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus kind of, I'm, I'm combining all of these things, they happen through a pattern of time, but Jesus calls a crowd to him. And he says, if you want to truly follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and come after me. That here, Jesus is kind of, it's like Jesus is saying, the gates of hell are not going to prevail over you, that you have received spiritual sight. Now commit to me. That when I have healed you, man, all this other stuff, it's going to make you go blind. It's going to just draw you away. It's going to pull you from what you're truly called to be. Jesus is calling for a commitment of complete devotion to him. I feel like a lot of Christians read that as kind of hyperbole. Uh, Jesus, he didn't really mean complete devotion. We, we kind of read it like if anybody wants to come after me, just kind of, you know, give up your Sunday mornings and the first 10% of your income, and you can follow me and be my disciple. But what does Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. I love the way that Luke chapter 9 says it. Take up his cross. The reason I like it is because he says daily. It's not a Sunday morning thing. It's not a one day a week thing. Jesus is saying, I want you daily 
to deny your desires, to deny yourself of your impulses. Because what did Paul tell us in Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 2? He said that we were following the course of this world. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. If the body wanted it, we just gave it to it. If my mind thought it, I gave in to it. I said, well, I must have these thoughts, so it must be good, so I'm going to give myself over to it. And what does Jesus say? Deny those things. Die to them daily. So what my body wants is not what's right for me. What God tells me is what's right for me. Because I have a sin nature. I have this this pattern and this habit of sin in my life that is going to lead me to death. And Jesus says, deny yourself of that. Deny yourself your impulses. Deny yourself your desires and follow him. It's a daily death to yourself and a complete devotion to him. What is it? We all have those vices that it's like, oh, it's just, it's who I am. It's just what I'm, what I'm prone to. But yet Jesus says, don't be. Like, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and think, no, I have died to those things. That's what we see in Romans chapter 8 where he says, uh, that, or not 8, Romans chapter 6, where Paul's like, so because we have received grace, should we keep on sinning? And he says, by no means. You died to that. How can you keep on living in it? So we deny ourselves our desires. We say, this is not good. What Jesus says is good and right and true. It leads to life. And so I'm going to trust the word of God. I'm going to trust the promises of God. And so my question is, where is it in your life that you are not denying your impulses? And here's the thing. We are amazing at justifying it. We are amazing at saying, well, I'm doing this because fill in the blank. And it's like, no, Jesus says, deny it regardless. Deny it daily. Take up your cross and follow after him. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul told us we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then my favorite words in the Bible, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He did that when we were dead. Notice, what did Jesus hold back for us? What, what was it that Jesus was like, you know what, there's this way for them to be right with God, but it, it, it requires a lot from me, so I'm actually going to hold some back. He held nothing back. He said, I'm going to go all the way to the cross. I'm going to suffer a severe beating before him. The flesh on his back was ripped open, and then they threw a wooden beam on his back that he had to carry before nailing him to that beam, hanging him there for hours upon hours, suffering. And then they pierced him to prove that he was dead. And he shed his blood. Like we remembered that with communion. 
Like so often we see the little square and it's like, all right, this doesn't really taste the best. It's not my favorite bread. And so we take it and try and swallow it without really thinking. This is the ultimate price that Jesus paid. He gave everything for you. He broke his body. He shed his blood. Jesus held back nothing for us to be with him. It's not crazy for him to say, hey, I want you to hold nothing back and follow after me. He's saying, deny yourself daily. Take up your cross and follow after me. When we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, that we were dead and he made us alive, then it's like, okay, you gave it all for me, Jesus. And not only that, he says, you have this eternal hope that nothing in this world can take away. So these little denials, or yeah, denials that you're having right now, they don't compare. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, these present sufferings that we go through are not even worth comparing to the eternal glory that we will have. And so it's just like, man, God is, I think, I truly believe he means it. Give it up. Surrender, not 99, 100%. I've heard this saying a couple times, 99% is a beating, 100 is a breeze. So often when I try and give up sugar, I'm sneaking a little bit of sugar into my life and it's like, ugh, and it builds upon itself because I'm not fully making in my mind the commitment, I'm not having any. So many of us are like, man, I'm feeling beat down because we're not entirely giving Jesus everything. We're holding back that 1% and it's giving us a beat down when it's like Jesus is saying, give it all to me. Because in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief is going to come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to give you life and life abundantly. Do you trust him? Do you believe that? And are you willing to surrender everything over to him because you believe that? Father God, we come before you and we thank you that you are the one that works in our lives. You are the one that gives us healing. God, by grace we have been saved, not a result of works. It is the gift of God. But God, at the same time, you call for us to give you everything, to lay it all down at the throne of Jesus and to just surrender it all over to you. And so, God, I just pray that as we hear what you're calling for us, the complete devotion to you, I pray that each one of us looks inside our heart and we see if there's any area that we know what your word says and we're saying no. God, I ask that your spirit convict us of that. Convict us of the sin in our hearts so that we can deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow after you and find the true joy in life that you have in store for us. We praise you for the eternal hope that is found only in Jesus and is entrusted into the Holy Spirit to do the work now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.